And suddenly, my deep desire with great resistance turned into assurance because I had great power at my fingertips. <laughs> and I was energized after five hours of, of using the splitter. I had it all done. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a great lesson for me uh, just to, to realize uh, that, uh, that what I was lacking, what, I, what was a, a task that was utterly impossible for me, uh, suddenly became possible because a power outside of me made it possible. So today, we're going to talk about that very thing. Last week, we talked about our work of salvation from Philippians. But our work of salvation is powered by God. And I'm hard-pressed to try to think of a better idea to put in your minds than this one. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. At the same time, as much as we know this, we are so hardwired naturally that we don't ever, or I shouldn't say we don't ever, we struggle, struggle to stay, stay in this, this group. group. We really, we really struggle, struggle to stay in this group of being, of being able, able to bring, bring both of these things, things together. together. So let so me pray, pray, and then, and then let's, let's look at our passage. Our Father, Father in these, these few, few moments, moments, bless, bless us, us, myself included, with, with ears to hear, hear Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter, chapter 2, if you have a Bible turn there, there or go there, there or if you have a bulletin, you should also have it right, right in front of you. I want to give a little bit of context here. Uh, we're going to set this all up and kind of work our way toward this idea. But I, but I want you to see something that, that would not, not normally occur to us in this passage, but would have occurred to the, to the first audience hearing this book. Keep in mind that most of the people that the New Testament was written to either had a knowledge of the Old Testament because they were Jews who become believers, or they had been highly exposed to the Old Testament because they were what was called God-fearers, Gentiles who had become sort of uh, almost Jewish, if you will. Uh, and, and so, so it, was it was assumed that almost every audience that the New Testament was written to had a high knowledge of the Bible, the, Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, the first 39 books of our Bible. So that's, so that's why, why when you come to a verse like Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, of all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. While we may not recognize this, I believe the first readers recognize this. Certainly Paul, who was flooded with the Jewish scriptures, makes this connection between Philippians 2 and another passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, here, and here's the context of Deuteronomy 32. Moses, who's been leading the people forever, is about to fade off the scene, and Joshua is about to take over. And so he's, he's declaring all these great things about God in the first four verses of chapter 32, and then he, then he reminds Israel of their recent heritage. You have dealt corruptly with God, with, with your God. Uh, you're no longer his children, uh, in fact, you are blemished. You are a crooked and twisted generation. 
and he basically sends this out as a warning to them. Uh, and this is the same corollary, I think, that's going on here, because not only uh, is there a common problem to some extent, what was the main problem here in, in, um, uh, in, the, in the case of the Jews wandering through the wilderness? They had a very, very common problem. They, there was a problem between the people and God's appointed leaders, and eventually there became a problem between the, the appointed leaders as well. And Philippians has some of that going on as well. In Philippi, we're seeing some tension begin to build between uh, the people and their leaders and even between the leaders themselves. But there is a, there's almost a kind of warning tone here in this passage of Philippians chapter 2, so much so that if you read on just down uh, one more verse, holding fast to the word of life in verse 16, so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud that I, do, that I didn't run in vain. There's just a little hint of a warning here. You see, what's happening with the Philippians is that um, they're experiencing, most of you I think have heard this, me say this before, they're experiencing external persecution. Not necessarily physical persecution, uh, but uh, they're, they're definitely experiencing ostrac being ostracized by the general culture. And as a result, they're also experiencing internal dissension. And in this context, what is happening is they're shrinking back instead of pressing forward. Because the, the, the hike with Jesus is starting to get steeper, they're starting to shrink back. And Paul says, uh, comes to him and says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says all these things to call them to perseverance. But in the process of doing that, he's also warning them because if you shrink back and you're not persevering, what does that mean? It may mean that I have run in vain. So there's just a hint of a warning going on here. And the reason is because the witness of God is at stake. Same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 2 or chapter 32. The witness of God was at stake. You're about to enter into the promised land. And, uh, and if your witness is at stake, the whole witness of God, because if people want to see God, what do they have to see? The people of God. And if the people of God are twisted and crooked, then they can't stand, they can't stand out, they can't shine out uh, against this uh, dark background. So all of that is just another way of saying, this is where this is all going, when you hear this phrase, this phrase to uh, work out, out your, your salvation, salvation, which is kind of the main command, command that, that we're looking at here. I said last week, I, I really think the primary purpose of this is that we're to work out our salvation. This is the salvation of Red Cedar. Yes, it does mean my individual salvation. And again, and again we're, we're not working, working for salvation. salvation. We're working out of salvation, salvation we already have. But, but it's, it's really, really about, about our witness. witness. That's, That's why it goes on to speak about, about this idea of uh, shining out. So, so it's, it's about, about shining out, not shrinking back. back. It's, it's about not, not turning upon each other. other. This, this whole chapter, Philippians chapter 2, is, is all about this importance of uh, our, our witness of God and, and sort of proving to ourselves that we really belong to him that this is the reality of the real thing here that we care about. So that's the background that's going on here, the concern. And so what we're going to do is just look at this passage today, just these words and these passages, and try to take them apart a little bit. I want to start with talking about 
the word therefore that comes right before this. There we go. Nope, not that one. There we go. Uh, and some of you have heard that phrase before. When you see a therefore in the Bible, what's it there for? Thank you. Um, so it's, it's linking everything that's just been said. So I'm not going to re-preach the four or five messages from that section. But I am going to remind you of the overall theme that I want to try to keep this, this sort of picture I want to keep in your mind. Think of Philippians like the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N. Think of Philippians as the sun. And the sun is this uh, massive gravity. There's, there's this massive gravity in the sun. It pulls all the planets into orbit uh, around it. And that corollary here is that that's what humility is. The first part of Philippians chapter 2 is humility. And humility is like this intense gravitational pull. And what's it doing? It's pulling all the believers together around what? The gospel of Christ. Remember 127? Uh, walk worthy of the gospel, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here's humility that pulls us all together around the sun, making us a witness so that we shine out in what? Persevering joy. That's the whole, the whole book of Philippians. And humility, the therefore, refers to this binding agent of humility. Because you're in Christ, you have this superpower called humility. And you activate it by repeatedly, daily uh, surrendering self-exaltation for Christ-exaltation over and over again. Surrendering, uh, you're seeking the good life, you know, giving up seeking the good life, and instead pledging yourself to be a slave of everyone else so that you can discover real life instead of the good life. And this process of repeatedly surrendering our self-exaltation for Christ's exaltation kills off the pride in us so that Philippians 2 verse 1 can be true of us, so that all of these qualities, encouragement in Christ, comfort, participation in the Spirit, affection, sympathy, as pride is killed off and as we descend in slavery to one another, outflows all of these characteristics of Christ in verse 1. But there's something else that happens as we, as we descend into service to one another, as we descend into surrendering self-exaltation for Christ-exaltation. It increases our capacity for suffering. It increases our capacity for suffering because that's what joy is. It's confident anticipation that keeps us getting up over and over again and following Jesus because we're certain of the future. That's why verse 16 says what it does. Uh, holding fast to the word of life. This, this just picture of just holding on to the word of Christ or the word of life, the gospel, until the day of Christ. So that's what the therefore is. Therefore, because we uh, have all of this in Christ, it says for us to then work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. What's that mean? Hmm. Well, let me tell you, let me, let me stop for just a, a minute and give you a commercial that'll relate to this. So I, I just finished this book, Corruptible. Um, it's by a guy who's a... Um, professor of uh, global politics uh, out of uh, the University College of London. 
And basically, I mean, the, the subtitle says it, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. And he, it's fascinating because he interviews dictators and cult leaders and cites all of these different experiments. So toward the end of the book, you know, of course, he's going to help us figure out how to live in a world of power that corrupts. So I'm always kind of interested in how they can answer that question without any orientation to Scripture or to the Lord. And so eventually they get to a, a place, he gets to the place at the end of this chapter, and he says, we be, they've discovered that we as human beings behave better if we believe we're being watched by someone who has the authority to punish us. Isn't that interesting? Uh, we're nicer if we know that we can be punished for what we're doing. So, um, and then he, he cites this one study among many that there was a study in, uh, out of Newcastle uh, University out of England, and uh, they did this uh, experiment in the workplace, and there were refreshments out there for the workers. But there was an honor system. You know, you could take refreshments, but there was a little box called the honesty box, and you could put in uh, money for those refreshments. And there was a picture of a flower on the wall, and people were occasionally putting money in. Then they switched out the flower for an all-seeing eye. <laughs> and the refreshment box tripled in money. Uh, isn't that interesting? And... Uh, in fact, it was uh, the French philosopher Voltaire who had an interesting statement. He said, if God didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent him. We need an all-seeing eye. That was the Voltaire's idea. Well, he goes on to speak about, uh, and by the way, what was interesting in that particular chapter is he's saying, it's helpful if we know we're being watched, but of course the big question is, who's watching the watchers? And he argues rightfully that the watchers also need to be watched. And uh, at one point, he's, he speaks about just like nuclear power is a deterrent for mutually assured destruction. Well, interestingly, guess what? Religion isn't the answer to being watched, he says. Because religion, really, the reason it worked for a long time is it was, um, it was also MAD, but it wasn't mutually assured destruction. It was mutually assured damnation. And so his idea is that we've sort of moved past that. People have moved past this kind of idea, which is interesting because we haven't really moved past it because we have Santa Claus. Remember, he's watching to see if you're naughty or nice. So we have a sanitized version of an all-seeing uh, God who will punish us. And now we've even moved on past that to we have an elf now that hunts around the house and watches you all the time, <laughs> sitting on some kind of stupid shelf. But... Um, Is that what's going on here? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is watching you. Well, actually, this is not about the fear of rejection. It's actually about the fear of belonging. We are so used to hearing fear as a negative term, we don't think of it as a positive one. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You belong to God. Therefore, let that power you to work out your salvation. It's the, it's the joy of belonging. I mean, let me give you an example. We read this passage last week, Romans chapter 8. Let's read on a little further. Remember that fa fancy word? Did you use it this week? What was the word last week you were supposed to use? Mortification. Mortification. At least you remember it. A few of you do. 
I never remember what I preached the week before, so I'm glad you do. Uh, Verse 13 of Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you mortify, you kill, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Because this is true of all who are led by the Spirit of God, who are sons of God. And then he says this, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into a negative fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we belong to God, that we are children of God. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 6, it uses this same exact phrase, fear and trembling, to speak to guess who? Slaves of a master. And they, he basically says, Paul says this to him, respect your masters with fear and trembling because they're not your ultimate master, Jesus is. You see the corollary there? That uh, Again, it's um, who ultimately are we serving here? It's possible for us to serve a horrible master because we see behind that horrible master the ultimately good master. That's the idea in Ephesians chapter 6. We see that the Lord is in this. That's what helps us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We we basically see that he's our ultimate audience and his kingdom is what we're after. It's the same idea captured in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man has covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has to get that field. This is the fear of belonging. Uh, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. What does he do? He doesn't dread the commandments of God. He finds life in the commandments of God. They are a delight to him. So in other words, if you belong to Jesus... I don't have to persuade and convince you to follow him because deep down in your soul, there is an ache to follow Jesus. If not, then guess what? Do the math. So hear the Lord, first of all, in this section, hear the Lord commanding us to persevere. Hear the Lord in that command, commanding us to persevere. To go deeper and steeper in our walk with the Lord. But, oh, see that the Lord himself, see that the Lord himself empowers the very thing he commands of us. And that's why this next verse, verse 13, is such a profoundly helpful, helpful verse to any weary pilgrim in following Jesus. Because it's God who's at work in you. And guess what? He's not only at work in you to make you want to keep doing this, willing you, but also to empower you to keep doing this because it delights him to keep helping you get up again over and over again and work your tail off for Jesus. That's the idea here. Um, Now, let me say a couple things about this verse 13 that it's not. Verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2 is not God does his part, but it's no good without me doing my part. That is not what is being taught in this passage. In fact, that's not what's being taught anywhere in the Bible. Before I ever opened the Bible, I had been told so many times, God helps those who... Exactly. Wrong. Benjamin Franklin said that, not the Lord God Almighty. 
So this is not what this is saying. Sometimes it feels like the message in church over and over again is try harder. Try harder. Try harder. That is not what this is saying here. But it's also, interestingly, not saying this. God does it all. I just need to rest in Christ. I just need to rest in his grace. Just just breathe. It's almost like sometimes, and I'm getting guilty of this, it's almost in an effort to emphasize that it's grace, grace, grace. We're afraid to say law, 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 obedience, obedience, obedience. Disciplines of grace. We're afraid to say those things because it seems like by saying those things, we're undermining grace. When in the scriptures, they always go together seamlessly, wonderfully. And that's what's going on here. It is, what it is, is it's God's work from beginning to end, which also includes our work. It is our work, but it also includes our work. That's why, remember Philippians 1.6? Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you, who began it, will do what? Complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And in between that, you work out your salvation because God's actually at work in you. Do you see God, God, God in all of that? Uh, so John Murray says it this way. He's another one of these old dead guys. God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of co- cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the coordination of both produced the required results. No, God works and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. So as a result, we sang about it this morning. Jeff and Deb talked about it. It's just a matter of a few more breaths. And all of us are dead. And all of us are in, those who know the Lord are in his presence. And we all know, don't we? that it's not going to be a moment when he's going to say, well, what did you do to get here? And it's not going to be a moment for us to say, here's what I've done to get here. There is no boasting at all. That's why I love this picture of Christianity as, a, as the intensity of devotion with the safety net of permanent approval and delight. It's the struggle, mortification, with confident expectation. There's not a single work I do for the Lord. There's not a single step of obedience I do for the Lord that is pure. There's mixed motives in it. There's imperfections in it. But guess what? Because of this table, it counts. It counts. It's struggle with confident expectation. It's an increasing focus on Christ's presence and performance, making our own performance not only less our focus, but get this, this is the beautiful irony of how it works. The more we are focused on Christ's presence, the more it energizes our own work for Christ. And that's why Jesus could say, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to be all of you who've been living under the watched 
religions of the world where there's an all-seeing eye ready to punish you if you don't cut it at the end. Come, of, come, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you, because you can't live in this world without being under someone's yoke. You can either be under a light and easy yoke or the oppressive yoke of all of these other religions that have this criteria that if anybody's honest in their heart, they know they're not cutting it. And so Jesus says, come, take my yoke, that is easy. Take my yoke that is light. And that's why uh, there is this other thing happening in the Bible, and this is really where I want to draw this thing to a conclusion. There are these commands in the Bible and these promises. And I want you to think of the commands as uh, the runners, the joggers in a race, and I want you to think of the promises as the people on the side cheering. I want you to think of the promise that God is at work within you as this mob of people on the sides. And I want you to think of working out our salvation as the runners doing all of this persevering uh, work uh, uh, in the race. And what's fascinating is that there's almost always in every single long distance race more people cheering than there are people running. And did you know in the Bible, there are promises, there are dozens of promises surrounding a single commandment. Why is that? I mean, let's take the classic book that sort of explains it all. In some ways, I'm almost tempted to say it is the core of the entire Bible, of all 66 books. It is the book of Romans. Eleven chapters, eleven chapters of mostly indicatives. You know what indicatives are? It's a fancy grammatical term which means descriptions. Eleven chapters describing the work of God, a few chapters, your work. Why didn't you just start with your work? Why give us 11 chapters of indicatives? Well, because every step toward Jesus is met with a lie of some sort. Every step toward Jesus is met with resistance. Every step toward Jesus, the world, the flesh, and the devil begin to mess with us. They begin to say things like, your efforts are so flawed, they don't really matter. You're not making a difference either in you are in others. You're going in the wrong direction, the world constantly tells us. You're incapable, so don't even risk it for the Lord. That's going to cost you too much. Let me give you some easier options. The Lord's waiting on me to learn my lesson. There's another lie from the devil. I don't have enough faith. I'm on my own. I don't know if I'm praying this prayer, if God's even going to answer it. And the list goes on and on and on. So what does God do? He's constantly reminding us of what he's doing so that we would quit focusing on what we're doing. Let me just give you one quick example here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. There's two actually passages in 1 Peter if you actually want to find it, if you have a Bible. These are great places to mark down. By the way, if you want a little, there are dozens and dozens of passages like this that you really should know. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, wait for the command. Is there, see if there's one in here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has what done? Done what? Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
He's given us an inheritance that can't perish, verse 4. And it's God's power right now, verse 5, that's guarding us through faith. So you can rejoice in this, even though what? Right now, you are grieved by various trials. But these trials, verse 7, are doing something in your life. Same thing at the close of 1 Peter. He, he basically writes the same idea in a shortened version. Chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Put, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So these are all commands. And then it's like this safety net is placed underneath them in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his, to his eternal glory in Christ, may, if you're good enough, that doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say anything about a condition here. It just says this is what God will do. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Over and over, the Bible seems to be describing more than prescribing what God is doing. And it's meant to cheer us just like these, this crowd in a race. Uh, Samuel Rutherford had a beautiful way of putting it. Why should I be alarmed at the plow of my Lord that makes deep furrows in my soul. I know he's no idle gardener. He purposes a crop. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, what's the promise of Jesus? I will prune it that it may bear more fruit. Psalm 62 that Gail read for us is a good place to end, a good place for us to Think of, this, uh, think of this as we come to the table here in just a moment. Psalm 62 is what is known in the Bible as a lament psalm. The 150, there's 150 psalms or songs in the Old Testament. Many of them are these lament psalms. Many, many of them are people uh, in trouble, people struggling. And I want you to, we're not going to read this whole psalm, but I just want you to see what's going on here. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. And then verses 3 through 4, here's what's happening. People are attacking me. They're, 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 uh, they're against me. They're blessing me with their mouths, but inwardly they're cursing me. Verse 5, I'll say it again to my... But notice the difference between verse 1 and verse 5. Verse 1 is a description. Verse 5, he's speaking to his soul. For God alone, O oh my soul... Wait in silence. It's like he's taking his soul in his hand. He's speaking to himself. He's reminding himself of what's true. He then tells all the people in verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. And then he goes back to verses 9 and 10. All of these threats in life, all of these things that are, that are messing with you, harassing you, all of these things that scare you and, makes you and make you anxious, they're just a breath. They're just a momentary breath. Twice I've heard it. Power doesn't belong to those people. It belongs to God. So what's happening in Psalm 62? I think that if there's one application this morning, it's this. Know and believe the indicatives of the Bible. 
know and believe the promises of the Bible? What do these saints do who are in dire straits in the Psalms? They don't wait around till they feel better. They use what's true of the Scriptures, what God has said about them, the indicatives of the Scripture, and they speak them over and over to their souls till they get upright again and start moving forward. That's the power of these, all of these promises that we really should know as opposed to allowing our experiences to interpret our lives and forecast our life. Let me just have one, one more thought, but first I'm going to have the worship team and the guys come forward. And a, again, a reminder to uh, all of you, particularly if you're visiting today, this, these, this table here is for anyone who, as, as we heard this morning, belongs to Jesus Christ, who's, who has built their lives on the rock, not the shifting sand as we sang about, who realize their righteousness is in Christ, not in themselves, and who call him Christ, uh, who call Christ their King and their Savior. And so we'll come forward in the center here, and then in a few moments I'll lead us in taking bread and cup together. Uh, a few uh, years back, Dennis and I and a couple other people um, went on a bike ride from here basically up to uh, Dennis's place just uh, uh, east of Traverse City it was four days or five days I can't remember but I'll never forget the first day on our bikes riding uh, on this road <clears throat> and there must have been about a 30 mile per hour headwind felt like a hundred and um, and I, I the whole time we were straining and we had barely gotten under underway my mind kept saying what are you doing what are you doing that, you know, I would have never admit this publicly because these were guys, but um, <clears throat> I, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> you know, if this is day one, man, I'm not going to be able to do this for four or five, five days straight. Well, on the last day, uh, I don't remember how many miles we rode, but uh, there came a point when I had energy like, uh, like a banshee. I mean, I was pedaling uh, I was pedaling so wildly on those uh, the last probably hour or so of our trip. What made the difference between the beginning and the end? It wasn't a headwind. There were actually hills on the last part of the trip. I knew I was going to make it. I knew I was going to make it. I was so energized. So here we are, you know. We have desire that God has given us. He's planted it in our souls, but there is resistance there was great resistance to walk forward after Jesus. And there's great discouragement, which is why every week we take bread and cup and remind ourselves there is assurance. There is power. Guess what? Jesus made it. Guess what? If you belong to Jesus, you're not going to make it. You already have made it. Let that energize you. Pedal like crazy. And don't focus on your pedaling. Focus on the fact that we've made it. We've made it. Let's take a moment and think about that. And then I'll lead us in prayer.
Lord, if it was not for you, I would care less about the things of you, of, of, of creation, of your kingdom. If it wasn't for you, I was left all on my own to struggle with a moral conscience that constantly reminded me I was guilty. But because of you, we have this glorious desire to follow you in a world that pushes against us all the time from inside and outside. And so we praise you and thank you right now that Christ is our anchor who's already passed through the veil. We are chained to him. And even as we're struggling to pull on that chain, you are pulling that chain in with Christ. And one day as we sang about this morning, all of creation, everywhere we look, everywhere we see, every single knee will have bowed to Jesus. So as we come, may we celebrate and take in this power of salvation that we might work like crazy for you in Jesus' name. Amen.